You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. So Paul wrote once to the Thessalonians, and God led him to write again. <laughs> the content of this second one, a letter of further encouragement in the face of suffering, of warning against being misled regarding the coming of the Lord, and an exhortation for some to work with their own hands and not to sponge off of others. The author again is the Apostle Paul with his traveling companion Silas and and um, Timothy, because he mentions them in chapter 1, verse 1. The uh, date of this one is probably a year or two after uh, the first one, so maybe A.D. 51. Um, the occasion is that Paul has received word from some, um, maybe by a prophetic word, have spoken in Paul's name to the effect that the day of the Lord that is the coming of Christ, has already taken place. So some of them are saying that Paul told us that Jesus has already come back. Plus the fact that the disruptive loafers spoken to in First Thessalonians have not changed their ways. And so he has to bring up the same point again. Um, and the, the possibility is that some have said, well, the, Jesus is coming back any day now, so why bother going to work, right? What's the point? Uh, if I have debts to pay, big deal. Jesus is coming back and he's going to take us out of the world. So, you know, th that mentality. And that mentality has been repeated from, from time to time in, in church history where people have gotten caught up in the immediacy of Jesus' return and have therefore made really bad decisions in the now with their finances and, and acting irresponsibly. In this letter, the, the emphases, the sure salvation of the Thessalonian believers and the sure judgment of their persecutors, that God will, will deal with them. Uh, the day of the Lord is still ahead and will be preceded by something he calls the rebellion. And those who are idle and disruptive should work for their food. In, in this one, um, several things as you read. First of all, how the thanksgiving affirms the Thessalonians in the areas that need reinforcing. Um, as with 1 Thessalonians, it soon turns into a narrative about the sure coming judgment of those who are persecuting them, 
while ending on the note of their own sure salvation, and that the coming has a can't-miss-the-action dimension to it. There's going to be plenty of activity, and it's not like it'll happen and you won't know it has happened uh, against those who teach with the claim that it has already taken place. So um, in chapter 2, he, he begins the the body of the letter here by urging the Thessalonian believers not to be shaken by the erroneous teaching. Uh, chapter 2, he says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And so uh, apparently somebody has purported that uh, we got a letter here or a report here from Paul or a prophecy here that claims, and so he's he's responding to that specifically. Um, Paul's response uh, note that he reminds them of his earlier instruction on this matter to the effect that certain events must precede the coming or the parousia of the Lord, and then secondly note how the man of lawlessness mentioned in verse three of chapter two is a central figure in the whole narrative. Whoever it is, Paul doesn't identify who he is but he will be dealt with. A great rebellion will accompany his appearance, affected in part by satanic miracles that dupe those who refuse to embrace the truth. But in the end, he will be destroyed by Christ himself at Christ's coming. In chapter 1, um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, this is the evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And the, the Greek text is very explicit. This will happen in the apocalypsis of Jesus from heaven, which uses the term that later is used in the last book of the Bible to, to describe the full revealing of Jesus. And so the terminology of apocalypse is what's used in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, that God will bring back trouble to those who trouble you when the Lord Jesus, in his apocalypse from heaven, in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So when you read the book of Revelation, you've got that imagery of the rider on the white horse sword coming out of his mouth, flames and, and fire, and a host of angels behind him. That's the imagery that, that seems to be what Paul is, is introducing. Just that He passes quickly. When the Lord Jesus, in his apocalypse from heaven, in blazing fire, powerful angels, and then he moves right along. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul is placing that judgment as a part of the apocalypse of Jesus, which obviously hasn't happened yet from, from where he's writing. And from my perspective, hasn't happened yet because we haven't seen it, haven't heard it. And so Paul relates the apocalypse and the parousia together uh, in chapter 2, now concerning the parousia of our Lord. And so he, Paul makes an association between the parousia and the apocalypse. Paul encourages the Thessalonian believers in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, 
we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So he's encouraging them, uh, and he immediately sets them uh, in contrast to those mentioned in the previous verses who will be overthrown and judged. And he urges them to stand firm in their former instruction, to finally pray for their encouragement and their continuing faithfulness to their life in Christ and to the teaching that he shared with them. And so there's a contrast between those who will be overthrown and destroyed and those who will be kept. And um, and chosen. And then there's a request for prayer. Uh, the friendship in antiquity requires reciprocity, as we saw in the Philippians. Uh, I'm praying for you. Pray, would you pray for us? Um, he asked them to pray for him in his circumstance as he has prayed for them in theirs. And chapter 6 is when he deals with those who are idle. And because they're idle, they are uh, disruptive of, uh, of the church. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. And so he sets himself as that example. In returning to this matter, Paul uses himself as the example, and he urges the disruptive, idle people to work with their own hands so that they're not a burden to anybody else. Um, on the contrary, we work night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you, uh, implying uh, Paul's tent fabrication business, uh, where when he needed to raise money, he simply would uh, would turn to that business, uh, which was was quite a, quite an important trade back then. Um, because so often when people traveled any distance and had to spend the night somewhere, they typically carried a pack with their tent, and so. Uh, oftentimes they would hire a tent fabricator to to fabricate a custom tent for their family. It's not like you could go to the shop and, and buy tents off the shelf. Typically it was, uh, we've got eight people in the family, we've got you know three boys and seven girls, and, you know, and they would need a customized tent for their family. Um, oh, and my son-in-law who's married got, got three of our grandchildren. We need them to have a private compartment built onto the tent. And so tent fabricators... Uh, were sought after, and that, that's what Paul's trade was. So in that part of the world, that was a great job to have, a great business that he, on the side, at any point, uh, he and Priscilla and Aquila did the same thing. They were trained tent fabricators. And so Paul indicates that when he needed to, you know, he didn't, he wasn't idle. Uh, he would um, run his business, sell some tents, pay his bills, buy some food, and then keep on doing ministry. And so that, that's, that's how he would operate. Um, and then he tells the church what they are to do, namely disassociate from those who refuse to obey. Uh, if anyone, in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So not, not shun him where you kick that person out of your life, but put them at arm's length not as an enemy, but as a brother, always keeping relationship with them, but, but seeking to get them to come to grips with what they've been taught. That Jesus is coming back, yes. But don't be idle. And in your idleness, don't be destructive, disruptive. 
And he concludes with a statement of peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Um, uh, this letter fits into the biblical narrative as part of God's reassuring his people that Christ alone holds the key to the future, that they can trust him to defeat the enemy once and for all in his own time. In the meantime, love for one another also means not to impose on other people's kindness. Okay, So he's seeking to bring that responsibility. But in this one, it's shorter than First Thessalonians, but he manages to pack in here a portion of narrative about the lawless man encountering Jesus, which is important to note. I've read a lot of, of eschatology books. Um, they're not as popular in this season right now as they have been. But from time to time, there's uh, end times mania in the church. And you'll live through several of those. It's like the it's it's like the, the the tide coming in and the tide going out. From time to time, there's a tide coming in of of angel mania, and then the tide goes out. And then there's eschatology mania, and that goes out. And then there's health and wealth and name it and claim it mania, and that comes in and that goes out. And so these these the, the tide coming in and out. Um, I've read so many of the eschatology books that I disagree with, and the reason I disagree with them is that so often they ignore essential vocabulary. They'll read the English or Spanish or French or whatever, and they will glean their, their full understanding from what the words in their language are telling them with, without attention to the original and, and wind up getting themselves in trouble. Now, many translations have done a great job of conveying the truth of Scripture from the original, but when we're dealing with some essential doctrine I don't want people to draw conclusions based upon the turn of the word in the translated language that violates what the original said. So when it comes to eschatology, there are some, there are some essential vocabulary words. I want you to, to know these. File them away under, I might need to know this someday. So, so if it's not important to you today to have three Greek words, at least write it down and say, someday this might be important. And when it comes up, I'll remember what Russell said in week 11 of my DBS, okay? Just so, and then when that happens, someday, send me a message. Uh, it happened today. Thanks for telling me that many years ago, okay? The three words are epiphany, parousia, and apocalypse. Epiphany, brightness or appearing or brilliant shining. Parousia, bodily coming, bodily presence, physically showing up. Apocalypse, revelation, exposure, making something fully known. Those three words are all over the New Testament, especially in regard to Jesus coming back and the stuff that happens in relationship with Jesus coming back. Those things related to the last days, the end time. Uh, another important word is eschaton. Eschaton means last day, end time. And so eschatology comes from that idea of last things, last days. In... 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Um, tell you what, would, would, would one of you read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 in, in yours? So the first four verses of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind, 
or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Could could somebody summarize that, or or, or at least identify what seem to be the main points? Okay, so it, it, it sets the stage. Now, uh, let me point out that uh, in the first sentence, now concerning the coming, the, the English word coming is representing the Greek word parousia. Now, coming to me is a very soft word. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming into the room. I'm coming to dinner. I, I'm, 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 I'm coming to a meeting. I'm, I'm just, coming is... It's a gentle word. It, it indicates movement from point A to point B, right? It's nice. Okay. Well, Jesus is coming back. Okay. Parousia is not a soft word. Parousia, I'm here. Deal with it. Parousia is bodily, physically arriving. And he's in the room. But parousia has got punch to it. It's got reality. It, it, it's... It's Thomas who doubted Jesus. And Jesus comes up and says, hey, hey, touch me. Put your hand in my side. Put your, here, put, poke your finger in the hole in my hand. Parousia is physically arriving. It is coming into the room and, and owning the room. <laughs> okay. It, it's, it's being there, arriving there. So that it, it concerning the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as you envision the coming of Jesus, let it be coming that, that brings with it the glory and the radiance and the power of the resurrected Jesus who refused to stay dead. Okay, that's parousia of Jesus. Okay, so that's verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered to Him, it sounds like Paul is associating our gathering to Him happening at the same time as the parousia, right? And in his first letter, he described our gathering as, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down, loud commands, shout, trumpet, all that kind of stuff, the noisy stuff, and the dead in Christ will rise, go to the cloud, meet him there. We, who are still alive, will be captured, snatched, gathered up to him. So I think when he mentions gathering here, I think he's talking about what he already wrote about, about the, the rapture of the dead and the living. So he summarizes the parousia and the rapture of the gathering. And in chapter 1, he's already mentioned the apocalypse in verse 7. So the apocalypse, the parousia, the gathering. So uh, let's see. Would somebody read verse... 5 through 12. Who wants that? 5 through 12. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah 5 through 12 of chapter 2. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I 
told me these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed in the Lord Jesus, will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them strong delusion, so that they may be may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth or had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, thank you. That's a mouthful. Now, could somebody summarize that or highlight the main points? Um, I mean, he talks a lot about how like the wicked will perish and they won't be saved, which is nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yes. Now, does this tell me who this character is? He, he's, he's what? Right. The lawless one will be in accord with the work of Satan. So there's Satan and there's a lawless one. It doesn't tell me who the lawless one is. And I got to tell you, I don't have a clue. And anybody who claims that they know who the lawless one is doesn't have a clue from this. Okay? There's not enough clues for us to draw that conclusion until one day when it happens. And then I think we're all going to go, oh, now I get it. I didn't see that coming. So it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want people getting consumed with trying to identify characters where there's not enough data to say who. Instead of recognizing Jesus knows who he's dealing with and he knows how to deal with him. Now, look at this. In verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will. And your translation said kill, right? Okay. Uh, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow or kill with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Here's what I want you to know. Behind the word, um, splendor and coming are the two words, epiphany and parousia. will overthrow and destroy by the epiphany of his parousia, splendor of brilliant shining of his coming. And again, coming in English is kind of soft, but parousia is strong. And the Greek is saying that the lawless one encounters Jesus and gets to see Jesus for who he is. Except he has no shield. <laughs> he, has, he has no suntan lotion. He has no sunscreen. He's got nothing to protect him from the radiance. You remember Moses was affected by the radiance of God? And, and the implication is nobody can see God and live. Nobody can see the fullness of God. God cannot appear to somebody in his full splendor, his full radiance. And that person survive unless God changes that person. The lawless one will be the first individual on earth 
to encounter Jesus in his unshielded radiance and will be destroyed by the epiphany of his parousia. Now, now in modern times, people use the word epiphany as if they mean, oh, I had a good idea, right? In modern times, the word has come to mean, I had an epiphany, meaning I had a bright idea. Well, that's not the way it meant in the first century. In the first century, epiphany meant brilliant shining, something radiantly glowing to the point where I can't look at it. It's just, it's blinding. It's a light, a fire, a blazing, a brilliance, a beauty, a splendor. But the radiance of it is too much for me. I cannot handle it. And the lawless one will encounter the radiance of Jesus. And he will be destroyed by the epiphany of the parousia of Jesus. The bodily appearing, the glowing of Jesus, of his bodily appearing, is going to destroy the lawless one. Now, a lot of people, they, they read this, and, 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 they're, and they're all trying to figure out about uh, the rebellion and who's holding back and who's not being held back and, and continuing to be in his way and, and, and when the lawless one is revealed and people saying, well, the lawless one is clearly Putin in Russia or the lawless one is Chiang Kai-shek of China or the, I've heard the lawless one interpreted all of my life and whoever was the political enemy of the other part of the world, he, he had to be the lawless one. Uh, back in the Reformation, the Protestants said that the Pope was the lawless one. And the Catholics said that Luther or John Calvin was the lawless one. And so typically in, in world and politics and religion, whoever you didn't like, they're obviously the lawless one. Well, that's not the point. The lawless one will be in cahoots with Satan. And the lawless one gets to see Jesus before anybody else does on earth. And Jesus, at that point, is going to be radiating his glorious splendor, and the lawless one gets fried. Okay, That's the perspective that I see. So it's not about who's the lawless one, what's the rebellion like, uh, what, what false miracles will he be, be performing with Satan. It's about, wow, guess who gets to see Jesus first? In his unfettered glory, in his just... Uh, in, 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 his in his insufferable majestic splendor and it will destroy him that's that to me is the same point so epiphany parousia and apocalypse epiphany happens several times parousia happens a lot in the new testament and an apocalypse is used to to bridge those two so epiphany parousia and apocalypse seem to be three vocabulary words talking about the same event the same day the same arrival of Jesus. So note that. So when you next week, when you're reading the book of Revelation, pay attention to the terminology that does, in fact, include Epiphany, Parousia, and Apocalypse in the final books that you're reading next week. Okay, And sometimes it's not all clear in the English because coming is like, eh, I'm coming. Well, Parousia is like, ah, he's in the room. <laughs> he has arrived. <laughs> he's here. So I, I want you to try to get that feel, okay? Um, and, and when it comes to eschatology, it's important for us to know Jesus is coming back. It's also important for you to know, because you've read the entire Bible, what it does say and what it doesn't say about the particulars. And a lot of the eschatology books draw conclusions and stretch 
stretch the words to make it mean what the words don't actually mean and then go teach it. And quite honestly, sensationalism sells. And the more sensational people make it, uh, the more people get caught up in it. And uh, back when the, that whole Left Behind series, the, the books and the movies came out, it was sensational. And I disagreed with it from the get-go. And people in my church were asking me to teach on it. And I was like, I'm happy to teach from the Scripture. Let's look at Second Thessalonians. And I would do that, and they're like, well, no, that's not what the movie says. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. The movie is not built upon a careful reading of the words on the page of the Bible. It's a sensationalized conclusion that very often stretches, and uh, it's like they've cut up the Bible into puzzle pieces, and where the pieces don't fit, oh, oh, I can make it fit, and you cut it up a little bit more, and you make it fit, instead of letting it say what it's trying to say. An enemy of God will rise up who opposes the work and plan of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And one day that enemy will encounter Jesus face to face, and he will be destroyed by the brilliant shining of his bodily presence. Awesome. Okay. Now, it's, it's 516, really? Okay. <laughs> are you ahead or are you behind? Oh, man. I'm going to guess behind. Right. In, any, any questions on Second Thessalonians? Yes. So, yeah. I'm sorry. But um, from this, like, kind of like the context, so I guess we can assume that this, like, lawless, lawless one is going to be a lot more, I don't want to say dangerous, but a lot more wicked than Satan. Um, For the lawless one to be destroyed before Satan, like, I don't know, I'm, like, talking about, like, all the wicked and deception. No, I, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. I, I'm, I would not, I would not rank, a lawless one as worse than Satan. Okay. Um, because I, I typically see Satan as, he's the top tier of evil, wicked individual with the lawless one subordinate to Satan, but completely in, in step with Satan, the idea of uh, the, the coming of the lawless son being in accordance with the work of Satan, displaying counterfeit miracles, is that he's certainly in accord with, he's in support of, I would say subordinate to Satan, doing the work of Satan as an earthbound individual. Who gets to confront Jesus? Cool. <laughs> So I, I, I wouldn't put lawless one as worse than Satan. I would say Satan is the most extreme and everybody else is the, the beast and the lawless one are identified as probably two different individuals. And I don't know who. And it could be that when it happens, we still won't know until Jesus comes and says, this is who I was talking about. Because that's pretty, that's pretty much how it worked when Assyria defeated Israel and, and Babylon defeated Judah that the people didn't put the pieces together until it, it was in the moment and in the in that moment of the events. The same way Jesus is born in Bethlehem and it's like nobody saw that coming until Herod said, uh, is there anything in the ancient text that tells us where? And and his people go and they, they look it up and they come back and they say, yeah, there's this thing about uh, Bethlehem, how little bitty town, Ephrata, and that's when he sent his people to go murder the little boys. And so sometimes these prophecies do not become clear to the people until they're in the moment and then they're surprised by it. So I, I'm, I'm suspicious of people who have it all, all worked out. And I've read enough 
of these eschatology books and blogs that makes me very suspicious. Uh, there's, um, uh, there's several good books that uh, there was a history professor out in California. He compiled um, from, um, from writings over the 20th century, early, early 20th century of um, interpretation of the coming of Jesus in relation to the tribulation. And, and people were, were specifically identifying uh, Winston Churchill or Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany or it, it, usually political leaders or religious leaders. And people were adamant. They had, they had it figured out. And so this historian looked back over the hundred years and showed time and time again, people were so convinced and they were so wrong. It was just, uh, it was comical to read, but it was sad to read. So that every time somebody else writes that they've got it all figured out and, and, and where modern individuals fit into these scenarios makes me real suspicious. Just, I look at this and I go, guess who wins? I don't, I don't, I don't know the identity of the, of the minor characters, but the major character, he wins. <laughs> and, um, so, so it's his power that's paramount. And remember, Epiphany is the brilliant, shining brightness of the splendor of Jesus. Parousia is the actual physical bodily arrival of Jesus. Apocalypse is the revealing exposure, opening up of the truth of God about Jesus. First Corinthians. <laughs> Let's go there. Corinth. Oh, Corinth was such a cool place. Um, I got to see that three years ago. Corinth and Athens and Ephesus, really cool. Um, the letter is a, a letter of correction. It is filled with corrections. They had some problems. Uh, Paul stands over against the Corinthians on issue after issue, mostly behavior. Uh, their, their one big theological issue was about resurrection, but they had a lot of behavior patterns that were wrong, that were bad, that were dysfunctional. Uh, and they're nevertheless betrayals of the gospel of Christ and a misunderstanding of what it meant to be a disciple. Um, the recipients were the church in Corinth, composed mostly of Gentiles, according to chapter 12 and chapter 8. Um, the occasion. Paul is responding to a letter from the church. In chapter 7, he mentions them writing to him, and he's got reports that he's received. Chapter 1 and chapter 5, he mentions he's heard from people who had visited Corinth and now have come to him to tell him about the behavior and their theology. And so he's got both a document from them in which they are apparently making statements and they have a series of questions. Now, remember I told you yesterday that the epistles sometimes are like listening to somebody's conversation on the phone and you get that one side of the conversation. What if your friend that you're listening to on the phone has heard the other person who's angry at them and you can't hear the angry person and they just said something and your friend repeats what they just heard on the phone and, you, and you're wondering, why did your friend just say that? There are several statements or slogans in the letter, 1 Corinthians, that apparently are not Paul's idea, but Paul repeating what they just said and then he corrects them. Okay, I, I tell you that up front because a lot of people are confused about 1 Corinthians because why would Paul say that? Right after, he, he contradicts himself. 
He's confused. And, I, and that's when I say, if you think Paul is contradicting himself, it's probably because he did not originate that statement. He was simply reading their letter. It's like he's got their letter off here and he's writing a reply. And he, I've done this. I've copied what somebody had just written to me. The, it's easy when people send me email, copy paste. And I'll do that all the time. People will, when I was pastoring, I got all kinds of email from people and I, and they would say something. They would type something. I would copy paste with quotation marks. Uh, you said, and then I, I quoted them word for word. I didn't retype it or change it. And then I react or respond or reflect upon the specific words they used. So I get it right. Okay. I, I use that by illustration. I think several times Paul's quoting them. Okay, and that might be why some of the statements are in there. It's, it, but the problem is the Greek text in the ancient world did not use punctuation like quotation marks. They didn't use quotation marks. And so we have to guess, is Paul quoting them here? Or is that a Pauline original statement? And then he's developing it. So just, just by way of warning, um, Sometimes we might conclude that's not an original statement. Like it's not, it's good for a man not to marry. Was that original to Paul or was he quoting them? Uh, food for the belly, belly for the food. Okay, is that original to Paul or is he quoting them in one of their slogans, one of their sound bites, and he's reacting to their sound bite? Okay, so that, that's very likely. That also can be a cop-out. Okay, we can be looking at something we don't like, and we can, and I could say, well, Paul obviously didn't say that. He must be quoting them, because I don't like Paul saying that. And so, yes, I've been accused of, of, of playing that card, and, I, and I, I try to operate with integrity and be honest with, I don't know. So, the main points. A crucified Messiah is the central message of the gospel. They got some major behavior problems, but that's a big theological issue. Is Jesus truly risen from the dead? And does it matter? Well, by the time you get to chapter 15, it's like, yes, it matters. Uh, the cross as God's wisdom and power. We as human beings can be all full of our wisdom and completely misunderstand what it means to be wise. The cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Because the cross comes with an empty tomb, right? Christian behavior conforms to the gospel. It's not about conforming to a person's individual sense of culture, but conforms to the good news of the kingdom of God. The behavioral issues have to do with, am I living in a way that pleases my king? And what is the true nature of life in the Spirit? Is it all about these outward expressions of prophecy and tongues and interpretation and words of knowledge and wisdom? Or is it about the life in the Spirit, which can flow out into revelation and prophecy or not? And the future bodily resurrection of the Christian dead. That's true. Not only did Christ rise from the dead, but that proves he has the power to raise us up. Now, he, he shared the same idea with the Thessalonians. And the reality is he's dealing, he's sending letters to different groups of people. But it's going to take a while for those churches to share those letters with other congregations. And so, yes, you'll see Paul teaching some of the same teachings 
that he taught elsewhere. Well, that's because he's writing letters to different places scattered all, all over that map, okay? And the, the Corinthian group, uh, the, the letters that we've seen, uh, letter to Philippi, letter to Thessalonica, were up here. Corinth is down here. So here, here's the mainland of, of what, is, what is ancient Greece and modern Greece. This is the peninsula of Peloponnese. There's a narrow land bridge between Athens and Corinth. Um, and it's, you know, at one point it's only a couple of miles wide. But Corinth is on that peninsula at the, at the southern end of that land bridge between the peninsula and the mainland. Um, and Paul, all of those dots are places that Paul had, had visited throughout his, his travels, his three different journeys. Now this, uh, this, the, the, the people. Um, the, the city is located on a strategic isthmus. That's the land bridge, that isthmus uh, that is between the mainland and that peninsula. Um, it was a strategic isthmus for a thousand years because whoever controlled that land bridge controlled import and export, uh, passage of people, migration of people, movement of goods, uh, raw goods and finished goods. So commercially, it was, it was an important place with Corinth on the southern end, Athens on the northern end. And because of their positions, those, those two cities had the opportunity to thrive as the guardian cities of that land bridge, north and south. Therefore, uh, Corinth controlled the commercial traffic from the southern end, and it benefited from that profitable location. Uh, at the narrow point on the southern end of the isthmus, um, they had they had set up a business in which uh, the 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 midsize and small commercial ships could be pulled up on the shore, and they had taken wooden planks and they had made a wooden road, and they had uh, they had manufactured they had uh, they had cut um, two hundred trees, you know the long tall poles. And they could lay the poles down and they would have oxen and ropes and they would drag ships on this road about two and a half miles uh, from, from one body of water to the next in order to avoid the long, dangerous journey around the peninsula, which would take days. And the closer they were to the shore of that, of that peninsula, the more rocky, all the rocks that were right under the surf. And so many ships had run aground and they lost all their cargo. And so it was cheaper to pay the toll for them to be drug across that two and a half mile. And uh, all the sailors would get off and go into town, spend their money. And uh, while their ship was being transported, take about a day, day and a half, um, and then be put in the water on the other side. And so everybody was making money. Uh, it was so the commercial traffic was right there, and that, that's part of, of the, the the strength of Corinth. Um, Corinth was uh, a military port. Uh, they they that's where the that's where the navy for that part of the world was. Um, the Romans maintained a presence there. There was uh, Roman military, Roman navy, Roman army, um, banks, uh, commercial interest. It was financially successful, so you have to have banks to control the finances. Um, because of, of having military and sailors and army, there's, 
there were always going to be all of the goods and services that support the military for whether it was groceries and food and clothing or whether it was bordellos and prostitution and gambling and all those kind of things that are related to a seaport like that. And uh, the, the city uh, built a reputation because of that. They were, you know, they, they were the Alta Cross who were, who were uh, proud of their commercial success, but there was the underbelly of the city also and the, the crime and the sexuality of, of that city uh, caused one of the philosophers to coin a phrase. Um, and and he, he was putting them down that, that other places should avoid Corinthianizing. And so that became a verb in Greek. To Corinthianize was that, that dark underbelly of, of uh, corruption and uh, sexuality and, and uh, gambling and drunkenness and prostitution. And th that was the underbelly reputation of Corinth. Um, so that, that, that's the context of the city in which the gospel was brought and impacted. And people coming from all parts of society, um, the upper crust and the lower, uh, becoming impacted by the good news of, of the kingdom in Corinth, coming to the church. Uh, it was a culture in which there were many different religions and temples a lot of temples to the different religions that were predominant in the city. It had been a Greek city-state from the 6th century on. Um, it was destroyed by Rome in 146 and completely rebuilt. And so nice, brand new buildings. Uh, Julius Caesar reestablished it as a Roman colony. Prosperity, vice, uh, diverse mix of cultures, reputation for sexual excess. It was Aristophanes who coined that phrase to Corinthianize. Uh, commit fornication with all the, the baggage with it, even to the extreme beyond the normal accepted sexuality of Roman culture. And so he considered the Corinthianized was to go to the excess. Within the church, there were a number of issues. And here's, here's the list of issues you encounter when you read 1 Corinthians. And it's safe to assume that either in the letter that Paul received from the church or from the two different reports that he got from his teammates who visited, here's what he deals with in the letter, in his letter to them. Divisions among them within the body, their morality, their understanding of ethics and morality, lawsuits between one another, their litigation taking each other to court, uh, sexual immorality, incest, uh, prostitutes, um, and whether it's proper for them to be doing these things or not, uh, confusion about relationships, whether we're married or not, and whether we're allowed to or not, or who should or shouldn't, uh, idolatry, uh, food sacrifice to idols, any problem with that, um, unity and diversity within their relationships, uh, temple feast and participation in temple feast, and whether they can continue to do the temple feast tradition within the church context. Uh, ignorance about the charismata, um, abuses of the charismata, and then collection for the needs of others. So those are some of the issues that are, are brought up in that letter. Um, the, and those are all behavioral. They have to do with how we behave, our act, our, the, our, our, our verbal actions. Uh, the big theological issue is resurrection or not. And does it mean anything? And is it real? What should we expect or, or if anything?
Um, a couple of things to, to be aware of as you read it. Um, there's the wonderful verb baptizo. Um, baptizo. What do you think baptize means? Oh, you know what it means, right? Everybody knows what baptism is, right? It's when you're like dunked. It's something about like being completely immersed. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know like the, the definition is like something like being completely immersed. That's the way we do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The word baptizo means to initiate somebody. Mm-hmm. Now, how you do it is a different question. But the verb actually means to initiate somebody into something. And typically, it's being initiated into a group. You, you've, you've gone through some training. You've answered the questions. you passed the exam. You've made a promise of commitment. And you're being received into a community, into a group, into a society. And then there's a ceremony. And each society, each group decides how they do the ceremony. Okay? Modern-day graduations are initiations. We welcome you with all the responsibilities and privileges appertaining thereunto, right? Uh, our water baptisms in the church are an initiation ceremony to recognize uh, you've done Bible study, you've, you've had training, we've asked you questions, and we accept you. And the water experience is the ceremony to recognize what you've already done, what God's already done in you, and now we welcome you into the community of faith. Okay, so... Baptizo does, in fact, mean initiation. The ceremony within the church life repeats the ceremony of the synagogue life. The ceremony in the synagogue life was something happened in your life that brought you close to death. And therefore, you have to go into the water that represents cleansing because you were close to death and the water represents dying. Coming up out of the water represents, I'm alive, thank God. So, in, in the Jewish tradition, uh, if you if a man went to battle, to war, then you came close to death. You might not have even been hurt in the battle, but when you come back from battle, you have to wait seven days, and after the seventh day, then go to the water and say, I came close to death, go down into the water, come up, but because of God, I'm now alive. Okay. Um, if, if somebody's working around the house or farm, and they get cut and it's an open wound, and it bleeds, and they cover it, and there's a scab. You have to wait for the scab to go away. Seven days after the scab is gone, then you go to the water, and you say, I came close to death, but I'm alive. Okay. A woman has a baby, Okay, and when a woman has a baby, there's the flow of blood. That's just the natural course of things. And after the flow of blood, birth of the baby, Women wait, the, the woman waits for a number of days, the days are up, then she goes to the, the Jewish woman goes to the water. I came close to death. Mortality rate during, during the birthday, birthing process, very high. Many women died during the birthing process. And so it's no joke for them to say, I was close to death. Okay. Um, oh, a funeral. Uh, you attend a funeral. Your, your uncle Gershom died. Okay. So, you're a Jewish person, you go to Uncle Gershom's funeral, okay? Now, Uncle Gershom's wife and, and children uh, cared for the body, washed the body, spiced the body, and now the body's lying on the board in the living room, and every, all the family and the friends and the neighbors come, 
and they and they pay homage and they and they sit, sit Shiva for for a while. Uh, they, they honor and, and they weep together. But everybody who attends a funeral, everybody who attends a funeral, waits seven days after the funeral, even if they didn't touch the body, because they were they were in that space with people who had touched the body. And it's not that not that they were afraid of getting infected. It was recognizing. I came close to death. I came close to somebody who came close to death. I was close to somebody who touched the dead body. And it wasn't about the, the death. It was recognizing the life we have in God. And because I came close to that. Okay. A, a woman d- during most of her adult life has a monthly cycle in which there is blood. And every woman after her period would wait seven days and then go to the water recognizing there was blood. I was close to death. I am alive. So when you, when you read in the Old Testament about the waters of cleansing being, being ritually cleansed, it was representing, I came close to death, but by God, I am alive. And when a Gentile wanted to convert, remember there were God-fearing Jews in the synagogue? Okay. When a God-fearing Jew said, I want to become a Jew, they would ha- go through Bible study have a series of questions that would be asked. They would have to convince the rabbi. Three questions. Okay. Okay. They were, they were, they were told three times, go away, based upon the book of Ruth. Remember, um, Naomi, three times tried to get rid of the girls. Remember, um, uh, Orpah and, uh, Ruth. Orpah went ahead back to her family. But three times, Naomi said, no, I, you can't wait here. You go back to your father. Let him take care of you. You can't wait for me to have another son. And you, Three times. So based upon that principle, the Jewish synagogues with the rabbi would tell these Greek people trying to convert, don't. You don't want to do this. It's hard. Go away. And some of them would give up on the first try or the second try. If the person after the third time said no, I want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that person would be welcomed in. They would, for the first time in their life, go to the mikvah, the, the, the bath, uh, and the, the, the water container would be about three times as big as our modern tubs. Um, so there'd be you know, about 30 gallons of water in it. Enough for, you would, you would dunk yourself. Uh, they didn't dunk each other. The person would dunk themselves under the water completely. And it wasn't about the water. The water represented death. What, and, and the person, the first time a Gentile would be a convert, they would say, I, my sin had me close to death. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has given me life for which I praise him. Yes. So when you read about John the Baptist, John the baptizer down at the river, he's inviting Jews to come into the water. And Jesus shows up. And John is thinking, wait, 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 wait. You haven't been to battle. You haven't been cut while working on the farm. You haven't had a baby. You haven't had a period. You haven't been to a funeral this week. He can't think, and you're not a convert. There's no good reason for John to baptize Jesus. He's looking at Jesus thinking, there's no good reason for you to even do this. Jesus says, no, it's right. It's righteous as a model for the rest of us. What John was doing, he was inviting Jewish people to act like they were Gentile. That they had sin in their life. And, and that's something that the people didn't understand. 
That, that's what the religious leaders didn't understand. And they, they were upset at what John was doing because he was treating Jews born as children of Abraham as if they were Gentiles in need of salvation. And that's what John was doing. So the whole idea of initiation is you were not among us the way you should be. In, in, in many of them were issues of there was blood, blood represents death, you were, you were close to death, but the waters represent the fact that God kept you alive. Thanks be to God. So initiation into by means of something. So the water is simply a symbol of a much more important thing. So Paul, having said all that, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The ceremony of going into the water for the Jews when they when 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 a gentile converted to Judaism they would be immersed in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That that's that was that was the formula, okay? And a lot of people they get all go all specific about the formula. Are we baptizing people in the name of Jesus? Or are we baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And denominations have split over that one. That's just weird. But they would be immersed in the name or in submission to somebody of authority. And Paul is saying, you, you weren't initiated under the authority of Paul or Crispus or Gaius or Apollos or anybody else. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Oh, I'm, it's like he's remembering a few people that he did. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, whether I initiated anyone else. For Christ did not send me to initiate, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 1 Corinthians 10.1 says, We were all initiated into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 1 Corinthians 12. In one spirit, we were all initiated into one body. And there, he's, he's talking about the, the body of Christ, the, the church on earth. We were initiated by means of the spirit into the body of Christ on earth. Jews and Greeks, slave or free, were all made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 15. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, being initiated on behalf of the dead, because there was some strange movement doing that? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Because that, that it, it didn't make sense to Paul at that. Um, but Paul, in the epistles, mentions baptism a lot. In Ephesians, he's going to have one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Uh, when we get there to Ephesians, we're going to look at that to see about initiation. In modern times, a lot of people will take baptism meaning uh, full immersion in water and with the right formula, that you got to use the right words with it. Um, I don't think it's so much the, the, the right wording of the, of the formula of the ceremony as much as it is recognizing we're initiating people into a life in Christ within the community of faith. That, that's the point. Now, the ceremony is important, okay? You know, create a, create a great, memorable environment, but it's not so much about the ceremony because the ceremony is to recognize there's something 
really important that God has done and wants to continue doing of the transformation of that human being from death to life. That's, that's what it builds on. Okay. Now, uh, Scandalon. Here's one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Now, there's a lot of rock theology in the Bible. Okay, There are stones of stumbling. Um, there is, there's the rock upon which we stand. Um, Scandalon was a stumbling block, an object that offends to the point of raising opposition. Now, in, in the ancient world, um, it was common that, that cities and villages and towns from time to time would be attacked. That was just their experience. Um, an army, uh, an occupying force, an enemy group would come in and very often would, would, would tear down buildings in battle. And so you get, in that part of the world, stones. Um, well, nobody wants to waste a good stone. Um, after a while, people would move back into a, a destroyed area and try to rebuild. Jerusalem, over 27 times, have been, has been rebuilt. Totally destroyed. Buildings torn down. And people would come back in and, and rebuild on the same site. Uh, Damascus, the same way. Baghdad, the same way. You know, ancient cities... Where there are modern cities today, it's because people said this is a good place. They, it was a good place a thousand years ago. Let's rebuild again. And so in, in the ancient world, they would pick through the rubble to figure out, okay, this stone I can reuse. This one I can reuse. This one's crushed and it's all jagged and stuff. They would chuck it, um, so, which gives understanding to the, to the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The idea that they picked through the stones, uh, the, the best ones were the headers um, over windows and doors. Nowadays, we build headers out of wood. Okay, there's the, I, I assure you, I was here when, when the headers were put. I was in this space when the headers went up over those windows and over that door. Uh, over that door, it's um, uh, two by eight. Two, uh, two two by eight boards with um, Luan between it to create the, the right gap. And so, and over the window is just regular two by fours. Uh, two, two two by fours with the jacks on the end. The jack is when you've got two studs like that and the header sits on the edge of one jack. In the ancient world, they didn't have that much wood. And so they would cut stones so that you would have a, the header is, is, over a window like that, you would have a header that would be about four or five inches high and 36 to 40 inches wide and about six inches deep. Well, in the destruction, if that header cracked in half, trash it. You can't use it again. But a door header? Oh, if you've got a door header, you're talking about a, a 60 inch long. And if you find that in the rubble, not broken, oh, you're going to pick that up. It, well, two people will pick it up. And... Each time a header got used, whoever was building that house or that building would carve their, their name or their initials or their family emblem into it. And archaeologists have uncovered headers that were written on every side, that, showing it had been used six times because it had six faces. And so th that was common. While picking through the rubble, sometimes people would slip and fall, and the rubble would roll back on them. 
Scandalon, a stone on which I stumbled, a stone that raised opposition to me, a stone that crushed my foot, Scandalon. The Jews expected a triumphant political Messiah, not a crucified one. A folly to the Gentiles. Greeks and Romans were sure that no reputable person would be crucified. So it was unthinkable that a crucified criminal could actually be the savior, could be the king. And so we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandalon to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, a scandalon, a, a stone of stumbling. They, when people are picking through the rubble of ancient history, uh, looked at it and, and the builders rejected the stone that was actually the cornerstone, the best one. But others stumbled on it. I look at the stone going, this is the foundation of my life. It's the rock upon which I stand because Jesus is my rock. But what about people who don't have that discernment? They see Jesus and they stumble on it while they try to find better stuff, always looking for something better. And they wind up stumbling on it. Well, that's the way Paul used it. So Paul uses that word and it, it, that word comes with it a whole rich history of rock theology, of, of, of him, Jesus, being that stone that some people looked at and disregarded because eh, it's useless. He's, it, it's not important. It doesn't serve my purposes. But Paul is saying, guess what? He's, he was a stumbling block to the, Gent to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Gentiles looking at it going, how foolish. You people worship a crucified criminal? Ah, come on, you can do better than that. We got Zeus, we got Jupiter, we got Helena, we've got Astarte. Yeah, they got all these other guys who they consider better. And an important word to know. Oh, it's 554. Okay, I'll end on this one. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, this one has been used a lot to tell, tell Christians, don't smoke, because your body's a temple. So don't corrupt your temple with, with cigarettes. Okay, well, That's an interesting idea, but that's not what it's talking about. Again, It uses the word naos uh, for temple. Now, there's, there's a... There's a um, a word in the New Testament that typically means that building in downtown Jerusalem that the Herodian family were fixing up and that Jesus and the, the Pharisees and the rabbis would gather in the colonnades and, and where the animals were sacrificed. Uh, the Greek word is hieron, the, the temple area. Paul doesn't use that word. Okay, the hieron, the hieron means that whole area, you know, the whole temple and the compounds and the colonnades and, and the Holy of Holies and, and those closets over there. So everything was considered that temple. Paul uses the word that means that place on earth where God touches. Naos would be the holy habitation of the one true deity. And so the first century Jews use this word to distinguish the Holy of Holies from the remainder of the larger Herodian temple compound. So one word meant you know, the whole compound. But naos meant that point over which God touched earth at the Holy of Holies, believing that the Holy of Holies was the most sacred of sacred places. And Paul says, do you not know that you are the naos? 
the, the most holy place, the point on earth that God touches earth. The only point at which God touches earth. Matthew 27, 51 says, Behold, the curtain of the temple, the curtain of the naos, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Whereas in Luke 19, 47, he was teaching in the temple, in the hiero. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were, asked, were seeking to destroy him. Speaking of, of the colonnade in the larger temple compound, okay? And so uh, Matthew 27 is describing when Jesus died, the curtain at the naos, at the holy of holies place, the most holiest place on earth, was torn from top to bottom. So Paul here doesn't mean that each of his readers are an individual temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, you yourselves, plural. He's not talking about me individually taking care of my body. He's talking about do, do, do y'all. Now, I'm from the South. I am educated. I'm well-read. I know how to speak correctly. But in my Southern vernacular, y'all is plural. You is singular. It's just the way we use English language here. That uh, Spanish doesn't have that problem. You, Spanish makes a distinction between singular you and plural you. It's an inflected language. French, Swahili, Polish, Slovak. They're all inflected language. English, we lost our inflection centuries ago. So we don't distinguish between you, you, and you. Other than y'all. Okay. So in the South, that's how we distinguish. Paul said y'all. Y'all, you all. In, in Jersey, it's use guys or using. Okay. Here it's y'all. Paul wrote, y'all are God's naos. Y'all are God's naos. Don't you all know that y'all are God's naos? That's, that, that's who you are. And so we are that point on earth in which God chooses to, to touch earth.